to Stewart Observatory. It is a rainy night in Tucson, Arizona. Therefore, the telescope will not be open at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. Sorry. We also welcome those of you who are watching this podcast on the World Wide Web, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu, or the downloaded podcast from iTunes U, University of Arizona site. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I actually do have a couple of announcements that I'd like to make. If you are a student here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignments at that table at the conclusion of the question and answer period. Secondly, many of you have already picked up the schedule for the rest of our talks uh, this semester. You'll notice we have three more lectures after this one. There we go. Three more lectures after this one. But I also wanted to bring to your attention, I've already scheduled the first lecture for the spring semester. It'll be David Levy. He just got his PhD in English. And he's going to talk about the night sky in English literature. Uh, because there are no more comets to discover since the computerized telescopes do it all now much more efficiently. So we'll see David on January the 23rd in the new year. The other announcement I'd like to bring to your attention, we have Edward Gibson coming back, NASA astronaut Ed Gibson coming back to the University of Arizona. If you may remember last year at this time, he came here and we had a special event on a Thursday night where he gave out the astronaut scholarship. This year, we're gonna do it over in Flandreau Planetarium. So on Thursday evening, November 3rd, which is a week from this Thursday at 7.30, um, Ed Gibson will give out the astronaut scholarship to one of our geosciences majors here at the University of Arizona. And then he's going to give a presentation on the full dome uh, about, well, what may not be a full dome presentation, maybe partly one, but he will be giving uh, a slideshow on his life as an astronaut. And you can ask him all sorts of questions about what it's like to be up in outer space. So it's a free event. It's open to the public, 7.30. Flandreau Science Center and Planetarium, November the 3rd. All right, so now it is with great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker. I see we probably have more week. By the way, those of you who participated last week in the 100th anniversary of Stewart Observatory, I've gotten a lot of good comments about it. Thank you for coming. But we have more people here tonight than last week. And that's because put the word black hole in a title and they crawl out of the woodwork. Yeah, so uh, tonight's speaker is Dr. Samuel Gralla. Sam received his bachelor's degrees in, in physics, in physics and math at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. He received his PhD from the University of Chicago in physics. Yeah, oh, oh that's right, they're in the World Series. Unfortunately, they're playing my. No, unfortunately, they're playing my Cleveland Indians, so you don't stand a chance. And then Sam was also an Einstein Fellow, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Maryland. He is now here in our physics department. He is an assistant professor of physics. He is also a core faculty member of what is called our Theoretical Astrophysics Initiative. We have a theoretical astrophysics group that spans the physics department, Department of Planetary Sciences, and Department of Astronomy. And he's one of the core members. And he's here to talk on a subject which obviously is of interest because a lot of people come out to hear about gravitational waves, black holes, and the movie Interstellar. Dr. Sam Growler. Drama. Well, thanks, Tom. You're, you're clapping for me, right? Not black holes. <laughs> well, it's a great pleasure to be here and be part of a tradition of public lectures that's almost 100 years old. I had, I had no idea it had been going on for so long. Uh, I moved here a year ago with my wife and young son, and I was expecting and found a terrific university, world-class astronomy and physics. I didn't know how much I would like Tucson itself. It's a really great city. People have been so friendly. 
Um, I'm just really <laughs> happy to be here. I like the weather, the mountains, the cactus, uh, and the physics and astronomy. So let me tell you about black holes and gravitational waves and a movie you may or may not have seen. To get warmed up, I want to start with some great black hole quotes. This one from a hero of mine, Kip Thorne. If you don't know Kip Thorne, he's a, one of the leading astrophysicists, especially of black holes. He's also a great popularizer of physics. And he was an executive producer on Interstellar. In part, it was his idea. He's been trying to make a sci-fi movie for years, and he finally pulled it off. Kip wrote about black holes of all the conceptions of the human mind, from unicorns to gargoyles to the H-bomb. The most fantastic, perhaps, is the black hole. A hole in space with a definite edge, into which anything can fall and out of which nothing can escape. A hole with a gravitational force so strong that even light is caught and held in its grip. A hole that curves space and warps time. So that's terrific prose, but I want to point out that he snuck something in there, which is the definition of a black hole. And this is not just the definition for members of the public. This is literally the mathematical de definition people like me use when we work on black holes. It's a region of space with some edge out of with which nothing can escape. That's all there is to it. It's very simple to state. Here's the picture, some region of space. Anything can go in, nothing can go out. And I'm getting laughter, but I'm serious. This is all there is to defining a black hole. The next fellow I'd like to quote is Chandrasekhar. He's maybe less known to the public, but among astrophysicists, he's really the greatest of us. He's the father of the field. He's no longer alive. In his scientific life, which touched almost every field of astrophysics, he wrote, in my scientific life, extending over 45 years, the most shattering experience has been the realization that an exact solution of Einstein's equations, discovered by a mathematician, Roy Kerr, provides the absolutely exact representation of untold numbers of massive black holes that populate the universe. He goes on to say, the black holes of nature are the most perfect macroscopic objects there are in the universe. The only elements in their construction are our concepts of space and time. What did he mean by that? Well, I think what he meant is that there are really very few ingredients. I would say black holes are made entirely of gravity. He says they're made of space and time. As we'll see, and I'll describe to you, Einstein taught us that gravity and space and time are really all one and the same thing. But the point is there's not much to them, and they can be described very cleanly mathematically. And to an astrophysicist, that's unusual. Most of astrophysics is very messy. Black holes are very clean. So to think about why black holes are clean and simple to describe, let's think about how many numbers it takes to describe various things in our lives. So if you move to a new city and buy a house like I did, you have to buy things to go in it. And you spend a lot of time talking about chairs with your wife, for example, what chairs, what variety, and what size. And to describe a chair, you know, you really need four or five numbers. You need maybe how tall it is, how wide it is, how deep it is, how tall the back is. You might want to know a few more things. But for the basic functionality of the chair, it's four or five numbers. I'd say that captures most of the essential properties of a chair. Of course, for most of the objects in our life, like dump trucks, a favorite of my two-year-old son, it takes a lot more numbers. This schematic here has, I don't know, 10. You need at least 10 or more to talk about a dump truck. Turning to astrophysics, let's consider a star like the sun here. Well, you've got to say how heavy it is, how big it is, its radius, how hot it is. That's more than one number, right? It's hotter in the middle. The pressure, the magnetic field, boy, that takes a lot of numbers. I even have that twice on my slides, apparently. You say how fast it's rotating, maybe whether it's spherical. It takes a lot of numbers to describe the sun. For a black hole, it only takes three. That, I think, is really remarkable. All you have to say about a black hole to know everything there is to know about it is its mass. That fixes its size and other properties. Its rotation rate, that fixes how kind of deformed it is and other properties, and how much electric charge it carries. That's it. You don't have to say anything else. That's what Chandra Sekhar was getting at when he said an exact solution, a formula discovered by a mathematician with these three numbers in it tells you everything you need to know about black holes. For those of you that follow the black hole you know, uh, popularization and scientific literature, this is sometimes called a black hole has no hair. 
It's not a phrase I like particularly, but it's a phrase that's used for the fact that there's only three numbers. So here's my list. Black hole, easy to define. Very simple, characterized by three numbers. But as we'll see, there's a lot of complex physics that goes on near black holes. My next quote comes from Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist and a great popularizer. He writes, well, I'm a big fan of science fiction, especially as rendered in expensive Hollywood blockbusters. It's the real universe that calls to me. To fall into a black hole, that is more amazing than anything I've ever read in a science fiction story. And I agree. The great thing about black holes is they're real. They're not gargoyles. They're not whatever else Kip was telling us in the beginning. They're out there in the universe. So this is my list. This is why I really love black holes. But you should know that not everyone agrees. My last quote is from one Professor Bernard Nightingale in Arcadia, a terrific Tom Stoppard play. He's a literature professor. Professor Nightingale says, we were quite happy with Aristotle's cosmos. Personally, I preferred it. 55 crystal spheres geared to God's crankshaft is my idea of a satisfying universe. I can't think of anything more trivial than the speed of light. Quarks, quasars, big bangs, black holes, who gives a sugar? <laughs> so I will talk about black holes and you guys can decide whether you give a sugar. Let's start with a question and answer about black holes. How do you make one? I told you they're simple, but where do they come from? They just appear? Well, the formula for a theorist like me is simple. You just take a lot of stuff and you put it in a small space. How much stuff? What space? Well, to every amount of stuff and amount of mass, there's a critical radius, which is given by this formula. This formula involves the speed of light, involves the gravitational constant, the thing that sets the strength of gravity. But this is what Chandra meant when he was saying it's just our conceptions of space and time. The important formulas involve just fundamental constants. Anyway, you plug in what this formula means. And for the Earth, this radius is 9 millimeters. So easy. That's how you make a black hole. You take the Earth, and you put it in something 9 millimeters wide. No problem. <laughs> right? Now, the sun's heavier than the Earth, so you, this formula says you get a little bigger. So you take all the sun, you've got to put it in three kilometers, a few miles. Still quite a challenge. So you might not be satisfied with my answer of how to make a black hole. That's the theorist's answer, theoretical physicist's answer. Theoretical astrophysicists would say, OK, well, let me try to tell you how nature might make one. And the answer is there are stars in nature, and they can run out of fuel and collapse. So here's a nice diagram that appears in one of Kip Thorne's books, the first uh, gentleman I quoted. You know, I've studied stellar structure, of course, like everyone else who earns a PhD in a topic related to astrophysics. But actually, this diagram really helped it click for me. So stars are, are simple at heart. There is fusion going on in the middle, which is making the star very hot, blowing energy into it, making it high pressure. And the pressure pushes outward, much like pressure in a balloon that you could squeeze with your hands. So in a balloon, the pressure pushes outward on the wall of the balloons, and your hands, say, squeezing it, push back, and the forces balance. Inside a star, it's the same thing. You could pick any shell of matter at some radius, say this one in the star. The pressure of all the gas inside pushes outward on that shell. And what pushes inward, well, it's not hands, it's gravity. It's the fact that the molecules here feel attraction of all the stuff below. The atoms here feel attraction of all the stuff below and less from the top. And so there's a net inward force. So gravity is squeezing in, and pressure is pushing outward, and there's balance. And all is well until you run out of fuel. And then there's nothing heating the gas, making it have pressure. And the star can collapse, and it turns out if it's more than about a few masses of the sun, if it's heavier than that, nothing can stop the collapse, and you get a black hole. So nature actually provides a way of getting the whole mass of the sun inside a few kilometers. Well, it would have to be a star a little heavier than the sun, but plenty of those exist. So that's a theoretical astrophysicist's answer. He says, well, in theory, you can get this big star with many parameters. Not the sun wouldn't collapse, but something bigger to collapse into some very tiny speck, a black hole a million times smaller, much, much smaller in relative size than what I've indicated on the slide. 
And then the many, many numbers you needed to describe the star become the three parameters, mass, rotation, and charge you need to describe the black hole. But you might ask, OK, that's all well good in theory. Sure, you tell me this story sounds plausible. Does it really happen? How do we know that black holes actually exist? Now, just a few years ago, if I had given this talk, I would have my work cut out for me convincing you that black holes exist. I could say us scientists believe they exist, and you could trust us. But to actually tell you the evidence, I would have to talk about x-ray binaries and radio galaxies and delicate arguments about timescales of variability and how all these things combine and the laws of physics mean that according to these interpretations, there have to be black holes. And it was a good argument, but it was complicated. You may have heard that at the end of last year, as announced earlier this year, an experiment called LIGO detected something called gravitational waves. And the gravitational waves came from black holes. And now I can tell you why, black, why we know black holes exist in a much simpler way. I'll just explain what LIGO saw and why it had to be black holes. So that's what I'm going to do for the rest of the talk. So now I'm going to tell you about gravitational waves. But to start out, I'm going to think about a different kind of waves, just waves on water, which is a very nice analogy to gravitational waves. So suppose there was a pond, and suppose there was a person out in the middle of the pond trying to float on his back, apparently. Now, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I try to float on my back, I just kind of end up thrashing around. It's very hard for me to float on my back. So this man here clearly is thrashing a little bit. Why? Because, well, there are these waves coming out, right? If you splash around in the water, it makes waves, and the waves go out. So those are ripples on a pond. Now, if you saw the man, you know what's going on. You know there's a man thrashing making these waves. But if you were just back at shore, far away, if this were a huge lake, a very still lake and a huge one, you'd just see these waves. You don't know where they came, but you see the waves back at the shore. If you wanted to measure them, you could put a bob in the water and measure how it goes up and down as the wave comes and get some nice readout of the waves. And in principle, if you understood the physics of that water well enough, you could reverse engineer some aspects of what was going on. You could conclude that there was a man out there thrashing. The gravitational waves are very similar. So we have to think about something called space-time. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of space-time too much. In fact, it's really going to only appear on this slide. But it's a useful, gives us a useful visualization tool and an analogy. So Einstein taught us, and this is just true, that the force we know of gravity is really a manifestation of space and time being curved in a certain way. The mathematics describing this curvature of space-time is the same mathematics that describes curvature of shapes in, in spatial dimensions. That's why we call it curvature. So you can think of gravity as kind of like something that stretches and bends and curves, like this rubber sheet analogy. So you can see this ripples in this rubber sheet are being created by these pair of objects, say, massive black holes orbiting one another. So much like the man thrashing around launches out water waves, two black holes disturb space-time and launch out ripples in space-time, vibrations in gravity that propagate out. Turns out they move at the speed of light. And back on Earth, we can measure these waves and try to learn about the black holes. So for the man thrashing in the water, we put a bob in the water to measure the waves. Here you're all thinking the obvious thing to do is build two giant machines with lasers and put one in Washington State and one in Louisiana. <laughs> Costs about a billion dollars, but it's the obvious thing to do. So just to further orient you, here's a movie that illustrates what's going on. I'm going to bring down the lights on that. Oh. So the black holes merge. Waves move out. The waves propagate out through the universe. Now around here is Earth. You're going to see it flash to tell us it's Earth. Just so you know, we zoom in on Earth. The waves come by Earth. And the waves jiggle Earth a little bit. I'll tell you a little more about the way in which they jiggle it around. Notice the scale is vastly exaggerated. <laughs> we would have noticed this. 
But that orients you to the idea. The black holes merge, they launch waves, the waves jiggle stuff around, and we measure it. So now let me give you some more details. Like almost everything in this business, if you want to start at the beginning, you start with this fellow, Einstein, looking very dapper in his youth. And Einstein had an amazing realization in 1905. Nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Now, if you remember my quote from Arcadia, this is what Professor Nightingale thought was utterly trivial. Nothing could be more trivial. Well, from the point of view of physics, it's the opposite. He's totally wrong. This was a completely revolutionary insight that still forms the foundation of modern theoretical physics 100 years later. So that's just a fact that Einstein discovered about the universe. Something bothered Einstein about this fact and about gravity. It bothered him right away. Because if you remember your Newtonian gravity, which you may have learned in high school or college or whenever, the idea is anything with mass attracts anything else with mass. So that chair has some mass, and my clicker here has some mass, and there's a force between them, proportional to the masses, and inversely proportional to the distance. If I move my clicker over here, well, now suddenly the force changes, right? The, the force is now directed towards the clicker, right? If I move it over here, the chair feels a different force, and so on. And this really bothered Einstein because he knew nothing could travel faster than the speed of light. Not chairs, not clickers, not anything. No information at all can move faster than the speed of light. That's a pillar of modern physics. But if instantaneously, when I move my clicker, the chair feels a different force, instantaneously, that's information traveling faster than the speed of light. So Newton's theory says things change instantaneously. So Einstein knew it was incompatible with his theory. So he set about to find the correct theory of gravity, which was compatible with his revolutionary insight. And that theory is now called general relativity. Actually, it's Einstein's name. And it took him 10 years to get it and a lot of work. It's fascinating to study his thought process over the years. Now, once he had this, it was only one year to gravitational waves. Because gravitational waves are a very natural consequence of a gravity theory where information doesn't propagate instantaneously, right? So let me use the same example, except now I'll use me and you out there, so there's a little more distance. So according to Newton's laws, which Einstein's generalize, you're all feeling very attracted, imperceptibly, but quite attracted to your left, over here on the stage, to me. And now as I move over here, you're all feeling very attracted to your left. I got it wrong. Originally to your right, now to your left. And as I move over here, you're now feeling attracted to your right again, and as I move over here, and so on. But the information that I've moved isn't instantaneous. It propagates out. So if I walk back and forth and back and forth, what you feel an instant later is attracted this way, attracted that way, attracted this way, attracted that way. And if you weren't stuck in your chairs with all these other forces acting on you, you'd wiggle a little bit. Okay? So that's all there is to gravitational waves. And so once Einstein had the theory, he just had to do some math. And he figured out how gravitational waves work. So the other cartoon I like to use for gravitational waves is if you get really upset at somebody and you shake your fist at them, you're launching gravitational waves for the same reason. You're not going to injure that person very much with those waves, but you're launching them. So any kind of moving matter makes these waves, and the waves go out in all directions, and they're just the fact that the gravitational force is changing. Now, what does it actually do to you? Well, I talked about wiggles, but more technically, if you go through the math, which Einstein did in 1916, it turns out it stretches and compresses you. So if a gravitational wave comes through the audience, the first thing is you all feel a little skinnier and a little taller. So you're compressed in the middle and stretched vertically, and then it reverses. You're stretched horizontally and compressed vertically. Then it reverses again and so on. So instead of wiggling back you back and forth, it stretches and compresses you back and forth. So that's the basic effect of a gravitational wave. OK, you're all dying to know how big is this effect. Well, here's the formula. H here on the left is the wave strain 
So strain is something engineers talk about, like the strain on a bar. It's the same thing here. Strain is a measure of fractional stretching and compressing forces. So if h was a tenth, and there were a bar a meter long, it would move by 10 centimeters. It would change its length by 10 centimeters. Of course, that, a bar wouldn't change that much because there's other forces opposing it. But it provides a gravitational force such that if the bar were really a bunch of freely floating masses, they would move that much. But that number h sets a scale for how much the gravitational wave affects you. Then there's how far you are away from the source. OK, the further away you are, the weaker the thing is. That's why it's 1 over d. And this is just some measure of the strength of the source. If you shake your fist, there's some mathematical formula that tells you this thing. But the elephant in the room here is this number, 10 to the minus 44. 10 to the minus 44 is a number small even to physicists. I can't think of anywhere where a number like 10 to the minus 44 comes up in any interesting way. It's a trillion of a trillion of a trillion of a trillionth of one. It's just too small. And Einstein saw this number, and he thought, OK, I made a neat theoretical point. There's gravitational waves. No one's ever going to measure fractional changes in distances of a trillion of a trillion of a trillion of a trillion. It's just not going to happen. That changed with black holes and neutron stars, which are another type of very compact object that can do this. Once we knew there were black holes out there, you could conceivably effectively shake your fist so hard to make the waves a lot stronger. If the shaking of the fist was instead two black holes, each the size of a city, going around each other a 1,000 times a second, each weighing one ten solar masses, that's a pretty hard fist shake. And that can change that 10 to the minus 45 to, well, 10 to the minus 21. That's still a billionth of a trillionth of the size of your thing. That's the, the amount it's changing its length. So if you're me, you're still a little depressed. We're not going to measure this. But if you're Ray Weiss at MIT, you say, hmm, 10 to the minus 21. Maybe, maybe we can do this. And you, and you draw this schematic in 1972, which says something about some proposed antenna. Well, it's now 40 years later billion dollars or so, probably more, but that's the order of magnitude. And the collaboration involves 1,000 plus scientists. But we now have LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. I told you it was going to involve lasers. We'll get to that. So this is what LIGO looks like from the outside. First of all, there are two. There's one in Washington State. There's one in Louisiana. You want two detectors so you know it wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't some truck driving by. It was really a gravitational wave. You'll see it in both if it's a real signal. And it's got these long arms, two arms, each four kilometers long. And in that kilometer is a laser with about a megawatt, well, not yet. When it's full design, it'll be up about a megawatt of power. Now it's 200 kilowatts. So you know, up to a million light bulbs. And inside, they have these optics and these tubes. And I'll show you a little bit about why this is the thing you want to detect gravitational waves. So this thing is called an interferometer. Interferometry is something that we would teach physics majors at the very end of their first year or maybe at the beginning of their second year. So there are a lot of concepts going on in this movie that I haven't explained to you. But I still think you can get the gist. So the idea is these are mirrors. And the wave passes through the detector and wiggles the mirrors. And you're going to use the fact that light is a wave and can interfere to measure the changes in distance between the mirrors. So this is a laser. The laser sends light through a beam splitter. It bounces off the mirrors and recombines. And as the wave passes through, wiggling these mirrors, you see the brightness of the light changes here. And that's what you read out, the brightness of the light. The reason the brightness of the light changes is light is a wave. It has peaks and troughs. And if the peaks line up, the light becomes brighter. But if a peak lines up with a trough, you see no light here. See how these are anti-aligned, and there's no red. There's no light at all if the, if the peaks and troughs are perfectly anti-aligned. But as the distances change, the peaks and troughs change their alignment. And so you get change in how much light is red out there. And that's the principle of interferometry. Incidentally, this type of device helped Einstein discover 
his theories in 1905. And this is the principle people are now using to measure gravitational waves. It's a very sensitive probe of the distance between those two mirrors. So that was a schematic. Here's kind of a CAD drawing of the actual device, this LIGO experiment. Same idea, laser goes in, gets split up, goes out for four kilometers and back, out for four kilometers and back, bounces off a mirror, comes back, gets recombined, and is read out here. To set the scale of these containers that house all the optics, here's what it looks like with a reasonably tall human next to it. It's really big physics. Let's just overlay the schematic to remind you, laser light goes in, gets split, bounces off, and interferes here, and you read out a whole bunch of noise, plus hopefully some gravitational waves of astrophysical origin. And I said hopefully for years giving these talks, and now I can say they did it. The LIGO collaboration detected gravitational waves. I'm trying to look at people's faces now, and, and nobody's excited, as excited as I am about seeing, <laughs> about seeing all this stuff. And that's understandable. But when I saw this live in the press conference back in February, I was just floored. Okay, I mean, this is the type of thing that theorists have been calculating and predicting for years, and this machine took 40 years to put together from early ideas to funding to building initial LIGO to upgrading the advanced LIGO. And just to see this signal is phenomenal. So why is it a signal? Well, first of all, here in red, we have what the detector in Washington State saw. So the height of this red line is just what was read out in that photodiode, the light, which correlates with the distance change of the mirrors. So you can think of the red as the amount of wiggle. And then you overlay that on top of what Louisiana saw, and it's the same thing, right? They match exactly. So this was not a truck driving by the Hanford detectors wiggling the mirrors. It was something of astrophysical origin. Let me point out the time scale. This happened fast, fractions of a second, and it's over. And I don't know if you remember that 10 to the minus 21. They did it. They measured distances, fractional distances of order 10 to the minus 21. So with a four kilometer sized interferometer, Fractional distances of 10 to the minus 21 come out to a fraction of the size of a proton diameter. They measure distances that small using this huge interferometer. It's a spectacular achievement. So that's what they did. Now, those of you who aren't so used to looking at pictures like that may find it more intuitive to listen. I also find it more intuitive to listen. After all, sound is a wave too. Right? Sound is just vibrations in air molecules, air molecules wiggling. Your ear has a drum which wiggles too, and your brain says, oh, I'm going to convert those wiggles into some sensation we experience as sound. So sound is a great way of understanding waves, and we do this amongst ourselves too, not just for public presentations. But here's what you hear if you take the LIGO signal and you convert it into sound. You're going to hear it twice in a row, first in the actual frequency of the signal. It's going to sound like a thump. And then you're going to hear it up-converted into a range where our ears can hear more features. And then you're going to hear the whole thing again. That's the up-converted one. The actual signal. So I'll play it again in a minute. But that little thing that it sounds like, whoop, whoop, we have a name for that. We call that a chirp. And I can tell you, you know, I've been at this game 10 years or so, and many other people have been at it way longer. We've heard a lot of chirps in talks of theoretical predictions of gravitational waves. It's really amazing to hear the chirps of an actual set of black holes in nature. So let me play that again. Again, first you hear a little thump, which is the actual signal in the actual range of frequencies, played twice in a row, and then you'll hear it upshifted so you can hear more features, in particular how it increases in volume and frequency to make a chirp. Okay. So that's the chirp. The chirp is going to come back again at the end of the talk when we talk about Interstellar the movie. Okay. 
it's great they detected something of astrophysical origin. How do we know what it is? Well, in this case, the signal is so darn loud compared to the noise in the interferometer that you really don't have to do a lot of fancy analysis to know what it is. They did the fancy analysis to make sure it was right. They did the statistical analysis and found out what statistical confidence overwhelming we have in this detection. But in this case, you can really just look at it. Here's the actual data. And here's a theoretical prediction, the type people like me were giving in talks for years. Well, I didn't, this is an old prediction. I can't take credit for it. But it's just a calculation of Einstein's equations of what it would look like if two black holes merged. Just increase in frequency and amplitude, and then they merge, and it falls off. And you just subtract the data from the model, and you basically get zero. It's really that simple. That's how we know we're looking at merging black holes. So let me show you how these uh, calculations go. This is numerical simulation, not done by me. What you're seeing here is these dots are just added artificially, just to orient you as to the positions of the black holes. What's actually being plotted is a measure of the space-time curvature. I think it's called something called the lapse function. And you can see that the black holes are orbiting each other. And time is really slowed down here. These are going around each other like you know, up to 100 times a second, but we're really slowing it down. And down here is the gravitational wave signal this computer simulation predicts by solving those equations Einstein wrote down. Now, as the black holes emit this radiation, they lose energy because the radiation carries energy away. And so they get closer and closer together go around faster and faster, and now we slow time down to see the very final moments before merger, where space-time is really getting quite distorted, and then the video is going to freeze right at merger. There's this spike corresponding to a big burst of radiation, and then very quickly things settle down into a single quiescent black hole, and the waves are off to travel 1.3 billion light years to reach us 1.3 billion years later. So this is a simulation that was done with the actual masses and other parameters of the signal that LIGO saw. Now that's useful for theory. That's a very useful visualization to understand the space-time business, what gravity is doing. Another fun thing you can ask is, suppose you were sitting there with a spaceship watching these black holes merge. So nothing can come out of a black hole, right? So it really does look like a black hole if there's nothing near it. And here you just have some background field of stars, and any stars that were right behind it, you can't see them because their light went into the black hole. Now, if we let the black holes orbit and merge, this is, again, actual uh, computer simulations of the actual motion of the black holes and the way light behaves near them. You see this very interesting stuff. What's happening is gravity bends light, and so black holes act like lenses. And you're just seeing that the light from stars behind them has to go through this crazy space-time, gets bent all around. Now the black holes have merged, and it settles down to this very nice single configuration. So that's really what it would look like if you were out there watching. OK, I should show you something from the actual paper. This was, you know, these kinds of discoveries come around once a lifetime. So let, let's look at something from the paper. So here's where they listed what they learned about the source of these gravitational waves. So first of all, maybe you guys are all astronomy mavens, you know this, but this little circle with a dot in it means the sun. So this M sun is the mass of the sun. So there were two black holes orbiting each other, the primary and the secondary, i.e. the bigger and the smaller one, and one was about 36 solar masses, and the other was about 30 solar masses. And then the two black holes merged, and the final black hole was 62. Now, I, I don't know if you guys are good at mental math, but <laughs> I count about three missing solar masses. So that's right, and we theorists knew that. We knew that if you calculate what happens when two black holes merge, they radiate away their mass. They lose an incredible amount of mass as energy, E equals mc squared energy, in these gravitational waves. And so in fact, in those last fractions of a second, when these two black holes merged, they radiated away three solar masses of E equals mc squared energy. In fact, in terms of luminosity, you know, energy per unit time, per unit area, it was brighter than all the stars in the universe. For that second, 
those merging black holes outshone all the stars in the universe. So it's a really powerful event. And then it traveled about 1.3 billion light years. This is megaparsecs. And it made it to Earth. And by the time it got to Earth, that really powerful event was so weak, it wiggled the detectors, the mirrors, and the LIGO detector by about a fraction of a proton diameter. Right. So here's what we learned about sizes of black holes. Again, before all these gravitational wave detections, we knew there were black holes out there. And a lot of that evidence came from X-ray studies, which found black holes of anywhere from 5 to 15 mass solar masses, but not much bigger. We had no idea whether there were black holes of this size or this size. And then after one observation from LIGO, we already knew that this new class of black holes exist. Much of astronomy is just finding out what's out there. So we, gravitational waves immediately made a contribution. There was another detection later. And then there was a third almost detection where LIGO said, well, we're not sure it's real, but it looks somewhat statistically significant, so we'll just tell you about it. But the only solid detections are these two. So thus far, LIGO has heard two chirps from two black hole binaries and maybe a third. So to set the scale of these black holes, let's plot them over a map of the US. Now, I thought really hard about whether I should put the southwest here or I should put New England. And I figured since I'm blotting out New England with this 60 solar mass black hole, that would be more, more loyal to the southwest. So we can blot out New England entirely with the size of the black hole discovered just this year or last year by advanced LIGO. And other black holes are sizes of cities and so on. And keep in mind, all of these things weigh at least you know, 510 solar masses. This one is 60 times the mass of the sun, all in about the size of New England. So now I also want to show you one slide that I use when I give talks to my scientific colleagues about what this means and what it's good for. This is a busy slide, but I just want to show you all the things that we do. So first of all, just one detection. We're already doing fundamental physics. We're confirming Einstein's prediction that these waves are out there, and we're testing strong field general relativity. There wasn't really a good test of Einstein's theory near black holes. Now we have one. What about astrophysics? Well, we discovered, when I say we, I mean the LIGO collaboration. I had nothing to do with this. We discovered heavy black holes, black holes bigger than 10 solar masses. And we know that they can find each other and merge within a characteristic time of the universe. So what else are we going to do? Well, lots more detections should come. That's terrifically exciting how LIGO saw something as soon as it turned on. It means it's going to see more. So we're just going to learn more about what's out there. There's going to be more detectors, not just the two. There's one in Europe that's online. There's one in Japan that will come online. There's one in India we're hoping to have online. And that'll give us more sensitivity, and we'll know where we're looking. There's also neutron stars I haven't talked about. It's a puzzle of where these flashes of gamma rays come from. This could tell us about those. We might start using these black hole mergers to learn about cosmic evolution. And I kind of have a personal favorite. The scientific return isn't that overwhelming, but it's just fun. So, so neutron stars are these, are these very compact objects with a rigid crust. And does that crust have mountains on it, like Earth has mountains? Well, if it did have mountains, it'd be a little bit like a shaking fist, because these neutron stars rotate. And if it had a mountain like my fist, it was rotating it around, the gravity is changing. And you would feel that. And we would see that. And so actually, even from just LIGO not detecting these things, we know that these giant neutron stars can't have mountains bigger than a millimeter on them. Incredibly smooth. Kind of a neat thing you can do with gravitational waves. And then longer term, there's a bunch of other stuff planned. I think I'll show you the next slide for that. This is what's really exciting for somebody like me, the future. What are the things we can do with gravitational waves? Well, you all come to these astronomy lectures. You're surely familiar with the fact that it's not just visible light that we look at. There's a whole electromagnetic spectrum. There's radio waves, x-rays, gamma rays, microwave, et cetera. And we've learned so much from having all those different kinds of electromagnetic astronomy from electromagnetic waves at different frequencies. The same is surely going to be true of gravitational waves. We've now made one detection right around 
here of binary black holes. But there's a whole other frequency range and a whole range of instruments being designed to look in that frequency range to see things like, well, more on this later, so-called supermassive black holes, maybe supernovae, maybe some stuff from the early universe. So in the last 10 minutes, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the types of things I work on as a theorist working on gravitational wave sources. I'm really interested in LIGO in space. This is what I would really like, and it looks like it probably will be built, though it's going to be one or two decades from now. So the mission is called LISA, or ELISA, since Europe took it over. And it really is LIGO in space to a first approximation. The problem with gravitational wave detection on Earth is, well, the Earth. The earthquakes wiggle your mirrors more than gravitational waves, trucks driving by. You have all this noise, right? So one way to get away from that noise is to go in space. And the other thing is space is much bigger. And if you just make your interferometer out of three different spacecraft, you can just fly them really far apart. So you can get an interferometer a million times bigger. It turns out that this lets us look at lower frequency sources like supermassive black holes. So a supermassive black hole is different from the other kinds of black holes. It's still a black hole. It's very simple. There's only three numbers to describe it. But one of the numbers, the mass, is like a million solar masses or a billion solar masses instead of 10 or 30. So we call these supermassive because we really observe black holes of approximately the mass of stars, and then we observe these giant monsters, and, and nothing in between as yet. And we think every galaxy has a supermassive black hole in the middle of it. Certainly the Milky Way does. It weighs about a million suns. And some of my research focuses on what happens when the supermassive black hole gets another black hole orbiting it, some much smaller, say, of the size we've been talking about already, orbiting the big giant one. My research asks, what do the gravitational waves look like from that? And now we come back to interstellar. I don't know how many people saw it. Uh, I liked it uh, somewhat, but I especially liked all the neat physics in it. And it definitely connected to my research because there's this black hole called Gargantua. And it's orbited by a planet, Miller's planet. It's very much like the systems I'm interested in scientifically. In fact, it's really, really quite like it. Now, you can read Kip Thorne's book, The Science of Interstellar, and he'll explain why. But for the plot to make sense, uh, Gargantua's three numbers, remember, that's all I need to tell you about a black hole. The three numbers are the mass is something like 100 million solar masses. So it's in this category of supermassive. The rotation is really, really fast, almost the maximum allowed, the speed of light. I'll get back to that on the next slide. And the charge is negligible. There's no electric charge. OK, how do we know Gargantua spins this fast? Well, it's from this terrific scene where the crew of the spaceship, which is orbiting distant, you know, far away, orbiting the big black hole, decides to explore this planet that's very near the black hole. They go down on the planet. They spend maybe an hour there, something like that. Then they come back up to their spaceship, and two decades have passed. This is real physics. This really would happen. This, this time dilation is real. And so it's very, you know, wrenching scene. The astronaut just spent an hour on the planet. He comes back. His kids are grown up. They've got married. They have babies. And he watches, you know, all the footage that they've sent his spaceship from Earth over those 20 years. So this is a real effect. And because we have equations that describe this effect, we can compute from the fact that they only spent about an hour and it took about 20 years of real time or Earth time, say, we can compute from that formula the parameters of the black hole or aspects of them. And it turns out, while this time dilation happens for all black holes, in order to get close enough to have this big of time dilation, the black hole has to rotate really, really, really fast. There just aren't stable orbits where you can sit on a planet near a black hole unless it's rotating that fast. And I mean really fast. This is the number. This is a homework problem that you can use in your course on general relativity. You can calculate this from formulas that fall from Einstein's equation. It's 99.9999999999999% the speed of light. That's how fast this black hole gargantua has to spin for the plot to make any sense. 
Now, I didn't do this because of the movie. I was always already working on this. It was just a very fun coincidence that I was interested in what happens when you have gravitational waves from a smaller black hole orbiting a bigger one where the, when the bigger one spins really fast. Interestingly, this hadn't been worked out yet. It was presenting a, a challenge to the theorists working on this. So to set the scene, let me play again a sound of what the gravitational waves would sound like from a normal black hole not spinning so fast, just a normal supermassive black hole with another black hole orbiting it. I think I might have to turn down the volume. I already turned it down. Oh, thank you. So for the LIGO signal, we heard just the very end. But here I'm playing you more as the black hole orbiting gets closer and closer. That's the signal. It gets closer and closer, and then they merge, and there's just a little at the end. You remember the word I used for that? Chirp. chirp. Right. So that's what we call the chirp. And that's what all the theorists had always found when they did calculations. It always ended with a chirp. So we had a really fun surprise when we finally worked out what happens when the black hole spins really fast. Here's what it sounds like. It starts the same but you'll hear that the ending is a little different. So there's no chirp just keeps going higher and higher. And then instead of getting louder, it stops getting louder. It starts getting softer, and it sits on the same note. So when we wrote the scientific paper, we just said, oh, this is neat. This is a smoking gun, right? If you see this, you know you're looking at a rapidly spinning black hole. Every other kind of black hole chirps, right? But this kind of black hole does something else. So that's what we said in the paper. Then when we got some media attention, we had to brand this a little better, so we called it a song, which I think is accurate. Instead of going, it goes, right? It just, it just sings to you. Anyway, this was a fun little thing. It was fun to discover this. It was fun that Interstellar was out at the same time, so we could nickname these putative sources Gargantua. And you know, perhaps someday we'll hear this, right? I mean, people have been talking about chirps for many years. We're now finally listening to the chirps of nature's black holes. LIGO has heard two chirps. Maybe someday we'll hear a song and we'll discover Gargantua. So that's pretty much all I wanted to say today. I'd like to leave you with some suggestions for further reading or watching if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Again, Kip Thorne here is great. Anything by him I recommend, uh, especially his um, popular book from 1990-something. Still great. And he wrote a book on the science of Interstellar, which he was involved with, of course, really screenwriting the movie at some level, and he ended up as an executive producer. And then just for watching, you know, watch the news. This is just the beginning. I'm really excited that we've had a detection here, but there's a huge, exciting potential for gravitational wave science that I, at least, am looking forward to. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Sam. We have time for questions. I see a hand back. I'll go there, there, and there, and then there. I see you've got supernovas up on your little chart up there. Um, right now, is the current equipment capable of detecting those frequencies? And if so, how close would it have to be before you could detect them? Which frequencies? Supernovas. Ah. Well, supernovae would be in the LIGO band. So the, it's OK for frequencies. The problem with supernovae is we just don't know how strong the gravitational wave signal is. So if the supernovae were completely spherically symmetric, if it just exploded outwards, there'd be no gravitational wave signal at all. It depends on how asymmetrical that is, and that in turn depends on complicated physics that 
theorists are just starting to understand how to simulate. So we're really just kind of hoping we get some, but not expecting. Question here. Uh, you say the black hole can be charged. If you had two black holes, they were both charged, you'd get an electromagnetic radiation at the same time. Is there any progress on making a detector to simultaneously measure the electromagnetic as well as the gravitational signature? So there's two reasons that's not so interesting, although they're not obvious and I haven't mentioned. Number one, it's very hard to imagine a black hole in the universe would actually be electrically charged because the universe, as far as we can tell, is just filled with free charges, electrons and protons and all sorts of things. So if there were ever a charged black hole, it would just quickly absorb some protons or whatever it needs to become neutral. So we're pretty sure all black holes are neutral. Secondly, even if you had that system, which would be very interesting, it would launch an electromagnetic wave. That electromagnetic wave is going to be low frequency. It's not going to penetrate the ionosphere. We're not really going to be able to measure it. Question here. Um, Kip collaborated with someone named um, Anna Zeitkow, and there are these theoretical objects out there called the Thorn Zeitkow objects, uh, in which um, basically there's a neutron star at the core of a uh, red giant. And one theoretical trajectory is that the um, neutron star can continue to acquire mass and get heavier until the Landau-Oppenheimer-Volkov limit is exceeded, in which case it should collapse down to a black hole. Now, with that, would LIGO be able to detect that phenomenon? That's an excellent question. I I think the answer is maybe. <laughs> I wish I could do better, but again, you know, these, these explosions, these are just subject to a lot of theoretical uncertainty, so I hope so. Yes, here. In, uh, is it on? Yeah, yes. On. Uh, with Lisa, the space-based uh, interferometer, how are you going to keep the mirrors the distance and the orientation steady, or, or does the distance matter? Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't know the technology that well, being a theorist, but they have these micro-Newton thrusters. They're just little thrusters that basically just correct. So there's a mirror inside an, an encasing, and the mirror is supposed to be freely floating, and they just move the encasing around to make sure the mirror never hits it and everything's freely floating. In fact, one of the reasons LISA hasn't been built yet is people were really skeptical that technology was going to work, but they tested some of that with this uh, pioneer, what was it called, LISA Pathfinder mission, and it worked well. So I'm optimistic that, that it will actually work. I have a question about one of your three numbers. When you talk about the rotation of a black hole, are you talking about the rotation of the event horizon or the rotation of the singularity at the center? I'm talking about the rotation of the event horizon, but I should say it's a bit of a definition of what I mean by rotation rather than what you think of as rotation. Really what we can say is the black hole has a mass and it has an angular momentum. Those are the things you can define in physics. It's hard to explain why, but that's the reliable thing. And then we just convert the angular momentum into a rotation rate by sort of, you know, thinking about the mass and, you know, but it's not the singularity. Everything is property of the external universe, so it could only be the event horizon. Question here. What information do you have on primordial black holes? Well, not much direct. So a primordial black hole, the idea is a black hole that formed in the early universe. Didn't form from stellar collapse, formed from some other process. There is a question of where these big, heavy black holes that LIGO saw came from. People didn't expect them. One theory is maybe they are primordial black holes, and it's even possible that they are the dark matter, although I wouldn't bet on it, but it's, it's, there has been an interesting paper and some discussion about that. So we don't learn much. Well, dark matter, yeah, sure, but that's not the important part. It's the mass that we measure when we talk about dark matter. <clears throat> the uh, artist predictions or the, the, the drawings show two-dimensional uh, 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 sketch of what a black hole is. It's like a, an eddy in the, in the water going down, sucking something in. Yeah. But it seems to me that we're in three dimensions 
and the objects that are rotating are spherical, mm -hmm. and the black hole is really not a hole, but a spherical uh, entity that goes in all directions and yeah. would work from all directions. Is, is, is my imagination misleading me, or? No, I think you're absolutely right. So this two-dimensional thing is just an analogy. Maybe I didn't make that clear. Um, certainly, black holes are three-dimensional. The two-dimensional is just since you can visualize you know, wiggles on a two-dimensional thing easier than wiggles in three-dimensional space. You need a different name instead of black hole. No, I think black hole is still accurate. So it's still a hole in space, right? A hole doesn't have to be a hole in a two-dimensional table. It could be a hole in space. It's a hole in the sense you throw something in and it never comes back. A black void. A black void would work, too. Yeah. I have a question here. So for, for the interference to work at the LIGO, uh, the, arms, the length of the arm should be measured as accurately as possible, right? So how do you account for the thermal expansion of the instruments around the, along the arms? How do we account for the thermal expansion? Well, I'm not sure, not being, you know, involved in that experiment, I'm not sure I can give you a great answer. Uh, I don't even have the noise curve, do I? Well, I mean, they try to keep the interferometer power very steady, so it just is whatever temperature it is. I think that's the best I can say. It, an interesting comment is that you know, yes, thermal noise is a big source of noise. The hotter something is, the more it vibrates, the more it screws up your signal. But they have, uh, you know, 200 kilowatts of power in there, so they can't cool it down. So it's like a balance between turning up the laser, which gives you more laser power to give you more signal, but also you know, heating things up and adding noise to the system. Question up here. Just a, just a quick comment to her, to her uh, question is that when they, when they turned it on, the first thing they had to do was establish a baseline signal. So they actually got the baseline signal taking into account the thermal expansion and everything like that. So that's why um, they, they were reasonably certain they got rid of the, uh, all the thermal noise before they actually did detection. My question is, when you have a black hole rotating, the gravitational, the, the, um, since the black hole, since it's rotating space-time with it, would it not also be generating uh, waves of its own right? That's and, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just, that's a great question. So I, I didn't explain. So it's related to a comment I made earlier that if you had a spherically symmetric explosion, it wouldn't make any gravitational waves. And that's because the gravitational field outside of a sphere, I don't know if you remember this fact from studying gravity, it doesn't depend on how big the sphere is. It just depends on how much mass. So you have a sphere of this size or a sphere of this size. If you have the same mass, the gravity outside is the same. So if a sphere expands without losing any mass, the gravity doesn't change outside, so there's no wave. So the answer is the same for your rotation. As long as it doesn't have a mountain on it, a bump on it like this, it just turns out that if it's symmetric and rotating, the gravity doesn't change outside, so there's no wave. Sure, like a magnetic analogy would be like the sun has magnetic field lines that twist around, but they stay in a stationary pattern. So the actual magnetic field isn't rotating, although it shows signs of the rotation by the dragging back of the magnetic field lines. Question here? Kip Thorne uh, famously or infamously uh, pointed out that a rotating black hole is going to produce closed time-like closed time-like loops. Right. Is that something LIGO could ever detect? No. So what, what Kip and others observed is that if you take the, the solution that Chandrasekhar was so in awe of that describes a rotating black hole and you go inside the event horizon, there's this region of closed time-like curves, which, long story short, means you can go back in time, kill your grandfather, and run into all sorts of paradoxes. There's two reasons. The main reason not to take that seriously is the interior of a rotating black hole is actually unstable to small perturbations. So that exact solution is not a good description of what's actually going on inside a rotating black hole. And what is going on is actually anybody's guess. Uh, it's, even within classical general relativity, it's hard to know what would happen. And of course, near the singularity, you would need quantum gravity, too. We're going to take one more question. 
And then I'm sure Dr. Grala would be happy to hang around and answer other questions. Yes. If you have two actively feeding black holes and they collide, what happens with the Hawking radiation emissions as they collide? Do they stay the same or does it vary? Well, so there's two, there's two aspects to that question. The first thing you mentioned was actively feeding. So that usually refers to black holes with matter falling into right. them. Yeah. And if two black holes you know, merged and they had disks of matter around them, what would happen is a big disk would form around both black holes. And whether that gives rise to electromagnetic emission is an open question that's being hotly debated and is very interesting. Okay. You mentioned Hawking radiation. That's a totally different thing. That's a quantum effect. That's very interesting theoretically, but the Hawking temperature of astrophysical black holes is too small for it to ever be observed. I'm going to remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from tonight. It's about green fireballs and science and pseudoscience during the Cold War. Two weeks from tonight, November the 7th. Um, no telescope tonight. I'll stamp student assignments down here. Let's thank Dr. Grala one more time. <laughs>